April 24th, New York City. Join me and hundreds of other communicators at FutureComs 2019. Be a day long of all the great things going on in the world of internal communications. All information is available at futurecoms.info. If you decide to register, want to save a couple bucks, save 20% and put in the code podcast. And you save 20% off registration, put in the code podcast. Hope to see you all in New York City, April 24th, Futurecoms 2019. Cue the music. Culture Comms and Cocktails is internal comms served straight up. So settle in, drink in the knowledge, some shaken, some stirred, and maybe even some with a twist, and enjoy the top shelf guests I have lined up for you. I'm your host, Chuck Ghost, strategic advisor at Social Chorus, and it's great having today's guest, Shiv Singh, on the podcast. Shiv is a senior executive with deep experiences in building large brands and experiences within, and is also co-author of Savvy, Navigating Fake Companies, Fake Leaders, and Fake News. I guarantee you this is not a fake podcast, but he is also a speaker at this year's Future Comms event. Shiv, welcome to Culture Comms and Cocktails. Thank you for having me on, Chuck. It's a treat having you on uh, the podcast, so let's go ahead and get started. And it's kind of a uh, maybe a bit of a sad way to start the conversation, but let's talk about fake news. And it is everywhere. So I'm curious, how do we as employees, as consumers of information, how do we begin to sort out what's real, uh, what's not real? Like is real news the opposite of fake news? I don't know. And I'm curious also, like has the definition of fake news changed? Because growing up to me, like the fake news was like the National Enquirer because you knew it was fake. But now all different kinds of news is called fake. So how do we begin to sort all this out? Yeah, now that's a, you know, yes, it's depressing, but it's, it's, it's a great question and actually a good way to, to start this conversation. Firstly, I would say, yes, in popular culture and pop culture, the, the definition of fake news has without a doubt uh, evolved. And, you know, in recent times, we, 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 we do have a president to thank for some of that and for the popularization of the term as well. Um, you know, in, in, in previous cycles, we used to call it propaganda or misinformation or heresy. We'd use all kinds of other words. What makes the term fake news most powerful and, and most commonly considered these days is the fact that it is used to describe by a lot of people any piece of news that they do not agree with, which is frightening and shocking that that's what the criteria has has become but that is sort of the harsh reality that news that people don't like they label as fake news with the implication being that because they don't like it it probably is not real now having said that what i would like to add is that it isn't a black and white issue it really is a huge spectrum of fakeness in news and information and by spectrum or continuum I mean, you know, you could have an article or an editorial or, you know, a, a broadcaster uh, talking about a particular subject and being fact-based for most of it, except for one piece. Or, you know, it may not be as black and white an issue as a National Enquirer story, but it could be in the tone and the way it's written or the way the news is expressed that leads the witness in a particular direction. 
or it can be a headline that does not really reflect what's in the content of the article and is really clickbait to, to take you and, and you know, really digest the ad. So it takes many different forms. So that's the, the first part of it. The next question, you know, and part of the, my responses to your question about how do you deal with it? Now, now, of course, I could spend, you know, several hours just answering that one question and we go into it quite a bit in the book. But there are a few things I would sh share right off the bat. First and foremost, it's very important to think across the entire information ecosystem from the producer of the information or the news to the distributor of it to the consumer or the news or that information. Whether that's news that's in the public domain, like news coming out of the media, or it's news or information inside of a corporation. At each of those points in the process, there, there's potential for failure. And with the potential for failure comes the need to, to sort of be mindful of how you can protect yourself against it. And there's certain basic best practices to consider. So for example, always consider the source of uh, that piece of information. Uh, consider that publication, consider the author. Has he or she written a lot on that subject before? Does the publication, is the publication an authority on it? Next, read beyond and around that headline. It's extremely important to do that. Thirdly, Think about and consider what supporting sources are included in that story. You know, is it building on what has already been written on the subject? Check the date for when it was published. Sometimes that's, that's a telltale sign. Think about whether it's a joke. Sometimes it could be sarcasm. Sometimes it could be a parody that, that we actually end up falling for. Most critically, be cognizant of our own biases. You know, how are we interpreting that piece of information? Are we coming to the table with preconceived views based on that subject or that person that's discussed in it? And then also, and very importantly, look at a lot of experts around you to get their input on it or to see what they're saying about that subject as well. So that's some of the basics for spotting fake news. What I would say, though, is, there's never any easy answer, but the more conscious we are, the more we develop the skills and through that inoculate ourselves against fake news. We can identify it very quickly and move away from it. What you described there was, you know, asking, let's say, the, the readers, the consumers to do, I don't want to say a lot of work, but to do a lot of their own evaluation of it. And maybe this leads well into my next question, because uh, when we met, you spoke at one of Social Core Summits uh, last fall. And one of the, what I thought was very interesting and also equally frightening things you shared was about how quickly fake news spreads. And I believe it was even at a faster rate than real news. So is it because, again, people aren't putting in the due diligence and looking at it and verifying and looking at the context of it, that, it's, that they're, they're sharing it and spreading this news even that much more quickly? Or why is it that, that fake news spreads quicker than real news? Yes. Uh, so I shared this uh, wonderful study uh, done by uh, a few academics at MIT where they looked at 126,000 uh, news headlines that were shared on Twitter over a 10-year period. And what they found was that, yes, the fake news spreads seven times more quickly than the real news. 
And what was most frightening about that wasn't just that dif difference. It was more the fact that the fake news was being spread not by bots or Russians or foreign agents trying to you know, disrupt an election, but by regular people like you and me. And it's through that that we developed you know, one of the many uh, sharp insights in our book, which is that we as regular people carry responsibility in this fake era as well. We're the ones who are, who are spreading the fake news and who aren't doing what I would consider our due diligence in terms of understanding the information, processing it, looking at it, looking at it critically, and only then choosing to share it. We live in an age where we've all become, each of us individually, we are like mini media companies, but we haven't done our own media training. We haven't uh, 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 developed enough media literacy to be careful and sensitive about what and how and where we share. And it's not malicious, um, but it is still uh, problematic and can have massive damaging ramifications. A lot of communicators every year look at uh, Edelman's Trust Barometer, this report that come out, and it looks at trust in all different parts of, of our life, politics, um, NGOs, things like that. But there also is that component of, of leadership to see where uh, trust is sort of building in some areas, where there's trust between peers, trust with leadership, or is it waning in other areas? So I'm curious, what do you mean when you use the term post-trust era? Where does that come from? I've followed the Edelman Trust Barometer for, I don't know, probably two decades now. And, and I think it's a fascinating study that's worth following year after year. It comes out in January at the World Economic Forum in Davos. What, uh, what we found in our research and then also looking at the Edelman Trust Barometer, which we talked about a bit in the book, is that over the last decade, trust has been waning. And a lot of this traces uh, back to the 2009 financial crisis, uh, at least for us here in the States, where uh, all of a sudden, well, it wasn't that sudden, but Main Street you know, was uh, frightened and disrupted and sh shaken by the financial crisis and those subprime mortgages and what it was doing to their lives. As that happened, they also couldn't believe how many more billionaires were propping up in certain pockets of the country, as well as how no one was truly taking responsibility for that financial crisis. It was appeared as if Main Street was feeling the pain um, caused by Wall Street, but no one on Wall Street or government for that matter, because they carried some responsibility, uh, were being held accountable. So that triggered this, this sort of withering away of, of trust or, or the fabric of trust. And it was withering away trust in the government, trust in big businesses, and then also to a certain extent, trust in the media. And the media piece was tied to the fact that people stopped believing what they were reading in the papers because it didn't always match to what they were experiencing. And what I mean by that is, I, as just one example, you know, uh, my, my wife grew up on the Pittsburgh, West Virginia border. And in the mainstream uh, national publications, both TV as well as print, 
they would talk about this, the longest economic boom and how fabulous it was and all that it was doing to the U.S. economy. And the NASDAQ and the NYC were, you know, uh, shooting up to the sky. But if you walked the streets in that, that you know, that town, a coal mining, uh, you know, straightforward little town, you would not get that impression. You wouldn't get that impression by the economic health of that town or by talking to people uh, in that town as well. So that was where you had the, the story of the two Americas and it, it sort of created this, this, this breakdown of trust. Coupled with that, and of course, it's, it's hard to talk about this without getting into politics a little bit, uh, there were certain political leaders that played up on those fears and they, they created the impression that the media in of itself is spin-doctoring and creating narratives to really convince people to a particular ideology. And that's what led to, in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary um, uh, anointing the word post-truth as the most important word of the year. Now, when that happened, and I'm coming back to the Edelman Trust Barometer again, uh, when people didn't know what the truth was, they they sort of receded to what was familiar to them, you know, what they knew and were comfortable with. And what they knew and were comfortable with was what was in their echo chambers and their own filter bubbles, often in social media. And in those filter bubbles and those echo chambers, they found other people who would endorse and support their opinion. It was we were, you know, stepping back into our narrow little tribes all over again, sort of similar to what would happen centuries ago. With that, we would only trust what was familiar with us because anything that wasn't familiar, we wouldn't be able to tell whether that was fact or fiction. And that's how we landed up in this post-trust era. So yes, it started in 2009. That was, I'd say, a key moment here in the States. You know, in Europe, it was with Brexit and uh, at least in the UK and different factors elsewhere. But it started in 2009 and it quickly kept on growing and growing. And, and of course, technology, uh, uh, you know, made it happen more quickly. But that's how when we didn't know what was the truth, it led us to this place where we didn't know who to trust except those who are really familiar with us. And that's what we refer to as the state of being that we're in, the post-trust era. Now, you said something about the, the two Americas, and it got me thinking. I wonder if at a lot of companies, employees might see it as two companies. They see the leaders saying one thing. They see internal communicators you know, communicating those things, but then their experience is very different from what maybe they read about the company or they hear from their leaders. You know, in the past, I guess I would have called this, you know, gossip or rumor mill, what some communicators would have said. And, and also now can the term fake news be used? So as an internal communicator, what can they do to battle um, this concept maybe of two companies or, or um, you know, this post-trust area? Or is there something they can do to put a lid on fake news and actually provide and be a source of trust and truth to employees. Yeah, I think Chuck, that's a really good point because you're, you're absolutely right. They're, they're exact parallels, parallels within companies also, which is why when we wrote the book, we talk about fake companies and what, 
happens in them. So there, there are a few things there to consider. So firstly, what's contributed to the breakdown of trust in organizations is this immense disparity between what, you know, um, uh, an entry-level worker may earn versus what the CEO may earn. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a multiple that's mind-boggling, the, the CEO's salary over the entry-level uh, workers. The second piece is just as it's the case with, you know, the, the, the public web or the outside world, in an organization, today there are many more communication channels outside of the official channels. And for every official story or official piece of information communicated, there may be 5, 10, 15 unofficial channels. Uh, uh, you know, the, the water cooler hasn't only gone uh, digital, I would say. It has also multiplied many times. And those, you know, unofficial digital communication channels are created by people who have their own point of view, their own perspective, and typically, there's nothing wrong with that. But when a company doesn't have a strong moral fabric or strong ethical foundation, those unofficial channels become the real ones and become much more important. How can a company have more real news versus fake news and create a more real culture versus a fake culture? There are a few things to consider. The first is to appreciate that your employees, when it comes to news and information, may have their own biases or human glitches, and we talk about human glitches a lot in the book, just as you do as well. And it is important that when you're communicating to them, in this era of fake news where we're all struggling with telling the difference between what is fact and what is fiction, or what is true and false, or what's misinformation, it is very important to communicate in a much more fact-based, evidence-driven fashion and with humility and with transparency than the company or the leadership may have felt they needed to in the past. So what does that mean? A great example is just as, you know, when we started this conversation, you asked me, how can a person tell the difference between what is fact and fiction, what is real and fake news. An example of how an internal communicator can help his or her leadership team communicate to the organization effectively would be is to include supporting sources in that communication. Uh, have third-party experts or internal experts uh, referenced. A link to other sources have someone who's considered the authority on that subject lead the communication or the conversation. Uh, test the communication with a whole bunch of employees at all levels so that it, it doesn't have any biases built into it. And then, so that's one part of it. The other thing that the communicators can, can consider doing is making the informal channels more formal. You know, I've spent 20 uh, odd years working in organizations with thousands and hundreds of thousands of uh, employees, you know, and on the Marcom leadership team and, and, and working across cultures and, you know, hundred odd countries. And what I found is there will always be those informal communication channels, but that's not necessarily a bad thing 
they're often full of very good constructive conversations and there's an opportunity to elevate them and put them in the limelight without trying to control those conversations. And when you do that, there's a certain shared ownership that develops that just strengthens the company, strengthens its moral fabric and allows uh, two-way communications and learnings and knowledge sharing to happen much more organically and in constructive ways. Yeah, I think the concept of, of sharing communication is probably a new one for some internal communicators where they're very much used to be uh, the gatekeepers for information that's being shared in organizations. And one of the things we preach is more um, empowering others to be communicators. And I would think then maybe that greater variety um, would lend to some credibility and trust versus it just coming from that one place all the time. So maybe this is a bit of a, a chance to summarize a little of what we've discussed today. But what do you see as the role of the internal communicator now in this post-trust era? I would say it couldn't be a more important time for an internal communicator. In, in many respects, this is their time to, to lead from the front. And the reason I say that is while in the past, you know, the internal communicators may not have had the seat at the table that they would have hoped for and expected because other leaders in their organization may have, you know, thought of them as, as, as scribes or, I mean, I'm being facetious here, or, or just note takers or uh, folks who communicate a message but don't truly craft it. Today, their role is much more of a strategist behind the communications. It's, it's, it's a type of thinking that communicators will, are going to be asked to do much more of, especially now in a time where we will increasingly get more and more information about our company and our leaders from sources outside of the company than within it as well. And therefore, having that, that open source, open mind becomes very important, but then also knowing how to convince and guide you know, the business leadership in an organization on what to do differently compared to the way they may have grown up becomes a, a really important skill to develop as well. Well, and I know that fits quite nicely into what a lot of internal communicators uh, for years have been saying they want to be seen as that trusted advisor. And it becomes less of a doing job and more of a thinking and strategy job, which I think uh, should work well for companies and work well for the profession. So they're less of the pushing the buttons and hitting send and doing the writing. But as you said, more of that strategy behind the communications and being able to see things from all angles to then help employees take in all of those messages and start to understand where the valuable information is, where the real stuff is, and then where the fake stuff is. Without a doubt. And, you know, another part of this also is you know, to be a trusted advisor in the post-trust era also means really deeply understanding the meaning of trust and then what it takes to build trust, what it takes to uh, uh, then also rebuild it once you lose it and how, how you can, you know, be on guard about it always. I'd, I'd humbly suggest, Chuck, that, uh, you know, trust is probably one of the most overused words in, in 
corporations and among communicators and, well, I would say all business leaders, but not enough of us actually truly understand the meaning, how trust works, uh, the dynamics of it, and, and how to rebuild it, especially when it's broken. One of the things I did want to mention uh, as we talk about this, you're going to be one of the featured speakers at this year's FutureCom, so I'll get to see you in April in New York City. Um, at the event, what are you most looking forward to uh, being a part of FutureComs this year? Oh, I, I can't wait for FutureComs. Um, I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, well, and, and a few things for me. Of course, you know, I can't wait to hear uh, f uh, the other speakers and everything that they'll be saying. Uh, but more than that, I can't wait to hear uh, from the communicators attending and their points of view on how trust works in organizations for them, what they're seeing as having changed in the post-trust era, and how technology, when used effectively, can, can make all the difference. So, I mean, I, it, I, I couldn't be more excited about uh, future comms. Well, and very much what we've talked about today is this future state of what uh, internal communications, I think, could and should be um, as it evolves, where, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, it was about publishing or sort of being the scribe or note taker, which you talked about, uh, to now hopefully being that strategy behind uh, the message, behind the leaders, behind the employees, and, and being the ones to help facilitate and build on the communication practices. So Shiv, I wanted to thank you for, for your contributions. Obviously the book, uh, already just placed an order on Amazon earlier today so I can read it before I see you in April. Um, but I did wanna close out this. We close out everyone talking about uh, cocktails. So podcast name is Culture, Comms and Cocktails. Uh, we had an amazing uh, recommendation from Kyla Turner, the last guest with her El Diablo cocktail. So I'm curious Shiv, uh, no pressure here, uh, but what's your favorite cocktail? What's one you recommend uh, people try out? Chuck, you know, that's the most difficult question you've asked me on this podcast. And it's, it's, I'm starting to sweat. But I feel I have to share something. So here, here's mine. And it's probably not as dramatic or crazy as last week. But I recently had an opportunity to try a chai martini, which I loved. So that's chai as in, you know, those tea bags. Mm -hmm. and it was a martini, you know, and it had a bit of vodka in it. It had a liqueur in it, the crushed ice, you know, some nutmeg. It, it, it was just amazing. And do you remember where you had this chai martini? You know, it was actually at a friend's place. Oh, it. even better. Yes. And I, and and he said, you know, it's, uh, he, he's, he's uh, uh, from India, and he said it's available in India quite a bit, but I'd never come across it, and I, I found it fabulous. Chai Martini, that is, a, that is a new one for me. It's almost like a, last year I was in uh, Kelowna, British Columbia, and someone encouraged me to try an avocado margarita. Ooh. And, um, I'm not a margarita drinker, but I will say it was the best margarita I've ever had. Um, so as a, it's, and again, not a, even a crazy avocado person either, but uh, yeah, sometimes you get those little mixtures in there and they can be pretty amazing. Yeah. You know what I like about the avocado uh, uh, one is it, it sort of creates the impression that you're drinking healthy, even if you're not. <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> Another way to rationalize it. 
Well, Shiv, thanks again for being a guest on Culture Comes to Cocktails. I look forward to seeing you uh, this coming April at Future Comes. Thank you so much for having me on. I can't wait for it. If you enjoyed what you heard from this episode and want to check out others, find Culture Comes and Cocktails on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And when you do, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. This has been Culture Comes and Cocktails, internal comms served straight up. Thanks for listening.